Chapter Five of *The Masquerader* by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Five. For the space of a minute, there was silence in the room. Then, outside in the still night, three clocks simultaneously chimed eleven, and their announcement was taken up and echoed by half a dozen others, loud and faint, hoarse and resonant for all through the hours of darkness the neighbourhood of Fleet Street is alive with chimes. Chilcott, startled by the jangle, rose from his seat. Then, as if driven by an uncontrollable impulse, he spoke again. "'You probably think I am mad,' he began. Loder took his pipe out of his mouth. "'I am not so presumptuous,' he said quietly. For a space the other eyed him silently, as if trying to gauge his thoughts. Then once more he broke into speech. "'Look here,' he said. "'I came to-night to make a proposition. "'When I've made it, you'll first of all jeer at it, "'as I jeered when I made it to myself. "'Then you'll see its possibilities, as I did. "'Then—' he paused and glanced round the room nervously. "'Then you'll accept it, as I did.' In the uneasy haste of his speech his words broke off almost unintelligibly. Involuntarily, Loder lifted his head to retort, but Chilcott put up his hand. His face was set with the obstinate determination that weak men sometimes exhibit. "'Before I begin, I want to say that I am not drunk, that I am neither mad nor drunk.' He looked fully at his companion with his restless glance. "'I am quite sane, quite reasonable.' Again Loder essayed to speak, but again he put up his hand. "'No, hear me out. You told me something of your story.' I'll tell you something of mine. You'll be the first person, man or woman, that I have confided in for ten years. You say you have been treated shabbily. I have treated myself shabbily, which is harder to reconcile. I had every chance, and I chucked every chance away. There was a strained pause. Then again Loder lifted his head. Morphia, he said very quietly. Chilcott wheeled round with a scared gesture. How did you know that? he asked sharply. The other smiled. It wasn't guessing, it wasn't even deduction. You told me, or as good as told me, in the fog, when we talked of Lexington. You were unstrung that night, and I—well, perhaps one gets over-observant from living alone. He smiled again. Took a collapse into his former seat and passed his handkerchief across his forehead. Loder watched him for a space, then he spoke. Why don't you pull up? he said. "'You are a young man still. "'Why don't you drop the thing before it gets too late?' "'His face was unsympathetic, "'and below the question in his voice lay a note of hardness. "'Chilcott returned his glance. "'The suggestion of reproof had accentuated his pallor. "'Under his excitement he looked ill and worn. "'You might talk till doomsday, but every word would be wasted,' "'he said irritably. "'I'm past praying for by something like six years.' "'Then why come here?' Loder was pulling hard on his pipe. "'I'm not a dealer in sympathy.' "'I don't require sympathy.' Chilcott rose again. He was still agitated, but the agitation was quieter. "'I want a much more expensive thing than sympathy, and I'm willing to pay for it.' The other turned and looked at him. "'I have no possession in the world that will be worth a fiver to you,' he said coldly. "'You're either under a delusion, or you're wasting my time.' Chilcott laughed nervously. "'Wait,' he said. "'Wait. I only ask you to wait. First let me sketch you my position. It won't take many words. 
My grandfather was a Chilcot of Westmoreland. He was one of the first of his day and his class to recognise that there was a future in trade. So, breaking his own little twig from the family tree, he went south to walk and entered a ship-owning firm. In thirty years' time he died, the owner of one of the biggest trades in England, having married the daughter of his chief. My father was twenty-four and still at Oxford when he inherited. Almost his first act was to reverse my grandfather's early move by going north and piecing together the family friendship. He married his first cousin, and then, with the Chilcot prestige revived and the shipping money to back it, he entered on his ambition, which was to represent East Walk in the Conservative interest. It was a big fight, but he won, as much by personal influence as by any other. He was an aristocrat, but he was a keen businessman as well. The combination carries weight with your lower classes. He never did much in the house, but he was a power to his party and walk. They still use his name there to conjure with. Lota leaned forward interestedly. Robert Chilcott, he said. I've heard of him. One of those fine, unostentatious figures. Strong in action, a little narrow in outlook, perhaps, but essential to a country's staying power. You have every reason to be proud of your father. Chilcott laughed suddenly. How easily we sum up when a matter is impersonal. My father may have been a fine figure, but he shouldn't have left me to climb to his pedestal. Loder's eyes questioned. In his newly awakened interest, he had let his pipe go out. Don't you grasp my meaning? Chilcott went on. My father died, and I was elected for East Walk. You may say that if I had no real inclination for the position, I could have kicked. But I tell you, I couldn't. Every local interest, political and commercial, hung upon the candidate being a Chilcot. I did what eight men out of ten would have done. I yielded to pressure. It was a fine opening. The words escaped Loder. Most prisons have wide gates. Chilcot laughed again unpleasantly. That was six years ago. I started on the morphia attack four years earlier, but up to my father's death I had it under my thumb, or believed I had, and in the realisation of my new responsibilities in the excitement of the political fight, I almost put it aside. For several months after I entered Parliament I worked. I believe I made one speech that marked me out as a coming man. He laughed derisively. I even married. Married? Yes, a girl of nineteen, the ward of a great statesman. It was a brilliant marriage, politically as well as socially. But it didn't work. I was born without the capacity for love. First the social life palled on me. Then my work grew irksome. There was only one factor to make life endurable. Morphia. Before six months were out, I had fully admitted that. But your wife? Oh, my wife knew nothing, knows nothing. It is the political business, the beastly routine of the political life that is wearing me out. He stopped nervously, then hurried on again. I tell you, it's hell to see the same faces, to sit in the same seat day in, day out, knowing all the time that you must hold yourself in hand, must keep your grip on the reins. It is always possible to apply for the Chiltern Hundreds. To retire? Possible to retire? Chilcott broke into a loud, sarcastic laugh. <laughs> you don't know what the local pressure of a place like Walk stands for. Twenty times I have been within an ace of chucking the whole thing. Once last year I wrote privately to Vale, one of our big men there, and hinted that my health was bad. Two hours after he had read my letter he was in my study. Had I been in Greenland the result would have been the same. No. Resignation is a meaningless word to a man like me. 
Nerda looked down. I see, he said slowly. I see. Then you see everything. The difficulty, the isolation of the position. Five years ago, three, even two years ago, I was able to enjoy it. Now it gets more unbearable with every month. The bad day is bound to come when... when... He paused, hesitating nervously. When it will be physically impossible for me to be at my post. Loda remained silent. Physically impossible, Chilcott repeated excitedly. Until lately I was able to calculate, to count upon myself to some extent. But yesterday I received a shock. Yesterday I discovered that... that... Again he hesitated painfully. That I have passed the stage where one may calculate. The situation was growing more embarrassing. To hide its awkwardness, Loda moved back to the grate and rebuilt the fire which had fallen low. Chilcot, still excited by his unusual vehemence, followed him, taking up a position by the mantelpiece. "'Well,' he said, looking down. Very slowly, Loda rose from his task. "'Well,' he reiterated, "'have you nothing to say?' "'Nothing, except that your story is unique, and that I suppose I am flattered by your confidence.' His voice was intentionally brusque. Chilcot paid no attention to the voice. Taking a step forward, he laid his fingers on the lapel of Loda's coat. "'I have passed the stage where I can count upon myself,' he said, "'and I want to count upon somebody else. I want to keep my place in the world's eye and yet be free.' Loda drew back involuntarily, contempt struggling with bewilderment in his expression. Chilcot lifted his head. By an extraordinary chance, he said, you can do for me what no other man in creation could do. It was suggested to me unconsciously by the story of a book, a book in which men change identities. I saw nothing in it at the time, but this morning, as I lay in bed, sick with yesterday's fiasco, it came back to me. It rushed over my mind in an inspiration. It will save me, and make you. I'm not insulting you, though you'd like to think so. Without remark, Loder freed himself from the other's touch and walked back to his desk. His anger, his pride, and against his will, his excitement, were all aroused. He sat down, leaned his elbow on the desk, and took his face between his hands. The man behind him undoubtedly talked madness. But after five years of dreary sanity, madness had a fascination. Against all reason it stirred and roused him. For one instant his pride and his anger faltered before it, then common sense flowed back again and adjusted the balance. "'You propose,' he said slowly, "'that for a consideration of money I should trade on the likeness between us and become your dummy when you are otherwise engaged?' Chilcot coloured. "'You are unpleasantly blunt,' he said. "'But I have caught your meaning.' "'In the rough, yes.' Loder nodded curtly. "'Then take my advice and go home,' he said. "'You're unhinged.' The other returned his glance, and as their eyes met, Loder was reluctantly compelled to admit that, though the face was disturbed, it had no traces of insanity. "'I make you a proposal,' Chilcott repeated, nervously, but with distinctness. "'Do you accept?' For an instant Loder was at a loss to find a reply sufficiently final. Chilcot broke in upon the pause. "'After all,' he urged, "'what I ask of you is a simple thing. 
merely to carry through my routine duties for a week or two occasionally when I find my endurance giving way, when a respite becomes essential. The work will be nothing to a man in your state of mind. The pay anything you like to name. In his eagerness he had followed Lode to the desk. Won't you give me an answer? I told you I am neither mad nor drunk. Loder pushed back the scattered papers that lay under his arm. "'Only a lunatic would propose such a scheme,' he said, brusquely and without feeling. "'Why?' The other's lips parted for a quick retort. Then, in a surprising way, the retort seemed to fail him. "'Well, because the thing isn't feasible, isn't practicable from any point of view.' Chilcock stepped closer. "'Why?' he insisted. "'Because it wouldn't work, man.' couldn't hold for a dozen hours. Chilcock put out his hand and touched his arm. But why, he urged, why? Give me one unanswerable reason. Loder shook off the hand and laughed, but below his laugh lay a suggestion of the other's excitement. Again the scene stirred him against his sounder judgment, though his reply, when it came, was firm enough. As for reasons, he said, there are a hundred, if I had time to name them. Take it, for the sake of supposition that I were to accept your offer. I should take my place in your house at, let us say, at dinner-time. Your man gets me into your evening clothes, and there, at the very start, you have the first suspicion set up. He's probably known you for years, known you until every turn of your appearance, voice, and manner is far more familiar to him than it is to you. There are no eyes like a servant's. I've thought of that. My servant and my secretary can both be changed. I will do the thing thoroughly.' Loder glanced at him in surprise. The madness had more method than he had believed. Then, as he still looked, a fresh idea struck him, and he laughed. "'You have entirely forgotten one thing,' he said. "'You can hardly dismiss your wife.' "'My wife doesn't count.' Again Loder laughed. "'I'm afraid I scarcely agree. The complications would be slightly—slightly—' He paused. Chilcot's latent irritability broke out suddenly. "'Look here,' he said, "'this isn't a chafing matter. "'It may be moonshine to you, but it's reality to me.' Again Loda took his face between his hands. "'Don't ridicule the idea. "'I'm in dead earnest.' Loda said nothing. "'Think think it over before you refuse.' For a moment Loda remained motionless. Then he rose suddenly, pushing back his chair. "'Tush, man, you don't know what you say. "'The fact of your being married bars it. "'Can't you see that?' Again Chilcot caught his arm. "'You misunderstand,' he said. "'You mistake the position. "'I tell you, my wife and I are nothing to each other. "'She goes her way, I go mine. "'We have our own friends, our own rooms. "'Marriage, actual marriage, doesn't enter the question. "'We meet occasionally at meals and at other people's houses. "'Sometimes we go out together for the sake of appearances. "'Beyond that, nothing.' "'If you take up my life, nobody in it will trouble you less than Eve. "'I can promise that.' "'He laughed unsteadily. "'Loda's face remained unmoved. "'Even granting that,' he said, "'the thing is impossible.' "'Why?' "'There is the house. "'The position there would be untenable. "'A man is known there as he is known in his own club.' "'He drew away from Chilcot's touch. "'Very possibly, very possibly.' "'Chilcot laughed quickly and excitedly.' But what club is without its eccentric member? I'm glad you spoke of that. I'm glad you raised that point. It was a long time ago that I hit upon a reputation for moods as a shield for, for other things. 
and the more useful it has become, the more I have let it grow. I tell you, you might go down to the house to-morrow and spend the whole day without speaking to, even nodding to, a single man, and as long as you were I to outward appearances, no one would raise an eyebrow. In the same way, you might vote in my place, ask a question, make a speech if you wanted to. At the word speech, Loder turned involuntarily. For a fleeting second the coldness of his manner dropped, and his face changed. Chilcote, with his nervous quickness of perception, saw the alteration, and a new look crossed his own face. "'Why not?' he said quickly. "'You once had ambition in that direction. Why not renew the ambitions?' "'And drop back from the mountains into the gutter?' Loder smiled and slowly shook his head. "'Better to live for one day than to exist for a hundred. Chilcot's voice trembled with anxiety. For the third time he extended his hand and touched the other. This time Loder did not shake off the detaining hand. He scarcely seemed to feel its pressure. "'Look here,' Chilcot's fingers tightened. "'A little while ago you talked of influence. Here you can step into a position built by influence. You might do all the what you once hoped to do.' Loder suddenly lifted his head. "'Absurd!' he said. "'Absurd! Such a scheme was never carried through.' "'Precisely why it will succeed. People never suspect until they have a precedent. "'Will you consider it? At least consider it. "'Remember, if there is a risk, it is I who am running it. "'On your own showing, you have no position to jeopardise. "'The other laughed curtly. "'Before I go to-night, will you promise me to consider it?' "'No.' "'Then you will send me your decision by wire to-morrow?' "'I won't take your answer now.' Loder freed his arm abruptly. "'Why not?' he asked. Chilcot smiled nervously. "'Because I know men, and men's temptations. We are all very strong till the quick is touched, then we all wince. It's morphia with one man, ambitions with another. In each case it's only a matter of sooner or later.' He laughed in his satirical, unstrung way, and held out his hand. "'You have my address,' he said. Au revoir. Loder pressed the hand and dropped it. Good-bye, he said meaningly. Then he crossed the room quietly and held the door open. Good-bye, he said again as the other passed him. As he crossed the threshold, Chilcot paused. Au revoir, he corrected with emphasis. Until the last echo of his visitor's steps had died away, Loder stood with his hand on the door. Then, closing it quietly, he turned and looked round the room. For a considerable space he stood there, as if weighing the merits of each object. Then very slowly he moved to one of the bookshelves, drew out May's parliamentary practice, and carrying it to the desk, readjusted the lamp. End of chapter 5